Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On April 18, a threat that had been hanging over European football for decades, which hardened in recent years, went live. Well, it appears this proposal of a European Super League, which poses an existential threat to football as we know it, is going ahead. A statement dropped just after 11pm UK time. Words that led to 48 hours never seen before in football. We expect the developments and we have had it in the last couple of minutes. A statement leading European football clubs announce new Super League competition. It says 12 of Europe's leading football clubs have today come together to announce they have agreed to establish a new midweek competition, the Super League, governed by its founding clubs. The Super League was here with Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea and Tottenham signing up to the breakaway tournament, joining Real Madrid, Barcelona, Juventus, Atletico Madrid and both Milan clubs. A proposed Super League for a European football has collapsed within two days of being launched. On Wednesday, AC Milan, Inter Milan and Atletico Madrid joined six English clubs in pulling out of the big money project after a huge backlash from fans and football authorities. It was gone before we knew it. Blown up in a blaze of fury from an unrivaled unity of football stakeholders. Fans, players, the media, associations and even governments waded in. We're going to look at everything that uh, we can do uh, with the, the football authorities to, to make sure that uh, this doesn't go ahead in the way that it's uh, currently being proposed. I don't think that it is good news for, for fans. I don't think it's good news for, uh, for football in this country. But while the Super League failed and was thoroughly rejected, it created an unexpected offshoot. Greater focus on governance in the game, with ownership in the Premier League particularly in the spotlight. On Sunday, Manchester United's hosting of Liverpool became the first Premier League match postponed due to fan behaviour after protests against the Glazers' ownership. Some protesters soon decided to go further and ultimately onto the pitch itself. This was the scene at one of the most famous football grounds in the world, that revered Manchester United pitch, the place of stirring feats of football occupied. 16 years of discontent spilled over at Old Trafford, stemming from the Americans loading £525 million of debt on United during their 2005 takeover that has since cost in excess of £1 billion. How was that leverage buyout allowed to happen? Why are we in a position where clubs, these social institutions, 
are being held hostage to the whims of their owners. And what next? Can football really reset? We chat to Joshua Robinson, author of The Club, the definitive book which detailed how billionaire owners came to have the big say in football, as well as Julian Tagg, chairman of Exeter City, who talks through their popular fan ownership model. Is it really feasible at the top end of the game? Josh, it's so lovely to have you with us. We have seen an unprecedented few weeks in European football, specifically in the English game. I want you to paint the picture for us on how we got to this point where the threat that had been hanging over the game for ages finally materialized. The Super League was there, it caused massive disruption, and before we knew it, it went away. You've done a wealth of research on the topic of the Premier League becoming an absolute goldmine, an attraction for overseas owners, and you know better than most how this environment was created for us to be in the situation we're in. Uh, it's important to remember that the Premier League was actually formed by a breakaway in 1992. Um, and we were in a situation where uh, the top clubs thought they weren't getting their due, that they were splitting too much of the revenue with smaller clubs, and they wanted to control a larger piece of the pie. So stop me if this sounds familiar. Um, in 1992, that's what happened and gave rise to the Premier League, which then ran away from, from the other European leagues at a, at a speed that no one could quite match because it understood very early that they were in the TV rights business first and foremost. They just happened to put 11 guys on a football field every Saturday. Um, and so we got to a situation where the wealth of those owners, which was building up through television, was then uh, supercharged by the arrival of a lot of foreign money, first with Roman Abramovich in 2003 when he bought Chelsea, and later the arrival of uh, investors from all over the world, and most notably in recent years, the United States. Um, what happened at that point is when you have people coming in with that kind of wealth, uh, they want to make sure they protect their investments. That's a natural thing. Um, and with American owners in particular, who are used to closed leagues in the United States, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, where all the owners are really partners with each other. They're all in business with each other. And even if you happen to be the worst team in the NFL, you're still a member of that cartel. You're still going to make money. Um, and the biggest thing that confuses them and, and that upsets them is the idea that you could be relegated or you might have to qualify for something else to access the biggest money every year. And in this case, it was the Champions League. Um, and that was all well and good for a while. But the problem is the Premier League, especially post Leicester City, got to a situation where there were suddenly six huge clubs, the big six, um, vying for four spots in the Champions League. That meant two of them were going to be left out every year. And this is when the they really started getting agitated and thinking we need to guarantee access to the most, you know, the, the largest possible slice of the pie, um, because that's how you run a business, a regular business. You want to be able to project five, 10 years out. That's what, you know, they're teaching at Harvard Business School. Um, 
But if you can't do that in football, you need to understand that football is not a regular business. And that's been the central tension here uh, for a lot of the owners. And I think that was the force that that was one of the primary forces that that led to uh, what was in the end quite a, a sudden and desperate measure um, in the creation of the Super League. As you've said there, obviously, they are these great businessmen, they're investors, they see the gold, and they want to absolutely maximize it, get the most out of the assets. But football clubs aren't just an asset, they are a social institution, they're the fabric of their community, and that's what you buy into, that's what gives it, it a its appeal to then create all those revenue streams. And now we are at a point where we have the scenes on Sunday at Old Trafford where we see protest against the Glazer ownership. And actually, what the Super League, which was this big, horrible thing that was put in front of us, has actually done is created an offshoot where fans feel emboldened now to tackle key issues and there's a greater microscope on the game on things like governance and ownership. From your point of view, looking at the current status, how do you see a move forward? Because there is so much money involved, so all the things that are usually put forward, like ban ownership, the 50 plus one rule as seen in Germany. All these things don't really seem feasible because of what you've just explained in the Premier League because of this huge money spinner that it is. Yeah. And what's interesting as well is that the threat of a breakaway, the threat of a Super League was always an extremely useful threat um, in terms of forcing change, just letting that dangle over the Premier League and saying, you know, for instance, in 2017 and 2018, when they were talking about redrawing how they distributed the foreign rights income, um, because again, the big six were saying, actually, look, we've got all this money coming in from new markets and really people tuning in from the US and uh, Africa and Asia are not, uh, are not coming in to watch Brighton versus Burnley. They're here to watch us. They're here to watch Liverpool and Arsenal and Man United and Man City. Um, so, the threat that that they might take their business elsewhere, so to speak, um, was very handy to them. So you, they, but if they were going to go through with it, they were only ever going to have one shot, and they kind of blew it. Um, they took their shot and handled the communications in such a way that suddenly Florentino Perez was the was the only person out there speaking for it. Um, on a kind of strange talk show at midnight in Spain, uh, the the Premier League owners were not heard from between saying we're joining the Super League and then we're sorry we joined the Super League. So the the position they're in now is is a really tricky one because they were not prepared for the reaction from fans and in particular the reaction from government during those forty eight hours that the Super League existed. Um, in fact, sources I spoke to who were very close to the project said they thought they might be able to weather the fan reaction, but the involvement of Boris Johnson uh, then became too much and everything rallied around that. Um, but what they, what they kind of also saw was, and, and what we saw, I think, in watching it unfold, is that 
it crystallized something that, that fans had long suspected, but rarely understood so clearly, which is that these owners are unbelievably disconnected from the, the cities and the communities that the clubs represent. Um, and I'm not sure that anyone expected that, that chasm to be so obvious uh, in those moments. And now fans, as you, as you rightly say, are emboldened um, in a way they haven't been before. They believe that they they made a, a huge difference in actually getting this project dropped, um, and you know even with the excesses of Sunday at Old Trafford, we're seeing a, a, a moment where it looks like owners will have to take notice, and it, certainly the Premier League will take notice to pr protect its own business interests. Um, you know they're they're talking about an owners a new owners charter uh, that would prevent further breakaway attempts. Again, that's maybe not so much a response to the fans as it is to protect their own interests. Um, but ultimately, the pressure is is huge on the owners, but there's still nothing quite concrete compelling them to sell. I don't think that you know this is going to change the value of TV rights. I'd be surprised if when stadiums reopened, attendances suffered in a meaningful way. So ultimately, a little bad PR, or in this case, a lot of bad PR, I think is something that owners are prepared to weather. Especially since the monetary reward is so high for them. You have reports saying the Glazers believe that Man United could become worth $10 billion and they want to stay around for that. Why wouldn't they? And I actually just want to focus in on the Glazers a little bit, partly because of the scenes on Sunday, but because their takeover was different to the other owners. It was a leverage takeover, which loaded £525 million of debt on United. And that's cost over a billion pounds. Still to this day, it boggles the mind that that was allowed to happen. And as you mentioned, the Premier League have been talking about a new owner's manual and other such directives. But back then, this was all put forward by fans and media had spotlighted problems with this. So the things that they're now offering up and proposing are on account of protecting their self-interest. Initially, actually, when the Glazer ownership was brought up to the Premier League, the response was, well, the market would will sort itself out, the debt will be okay, this is not a massive issue. We now see, obviously, that that's not the case. Well, and, and performance wasn't suffering in the early years either. Um, that's important to remember. Those first few years were extremely successful for Man United. So, you know, while there was opposition from absolutely day one, um, you know, I, I remember in working on the book being told about the first day that members of the Glazer family turned up to visit Old Trafford, the thing they had just bought. Um, and they had to be snuck into the stadium via the closed Munich tunnel in an unmarked van um, to avoid the protest outside where people were chanting, die, Glazers, die. Um, you know, they, they, I think, have known for a long time what kind of situation they're in and, and how tense it is, you know, which may be different from, say, Liverpool, where John Henry seemed genuinely surprised at the backlash, um, as we saw in his uh, slightly strange apology video. Um, 
but as far as the glazers are concerned, uh, that was, you know, that that was a, a really bold financial play with with a financial instrument that was kind of fa- you know fashionable in the eighties. You know, no one was doing leverage buyouts anymore in two thousand five, but to to saddle the club with that much debt was a a pretty you know people saw the warning signs um and i think the premier league felt powerless to do anything about it to this day the premier league still has never denied a takeover even when we were talking about saudi arabia and newcastle last year um when the saudi public investment fund was uh was looking at, at taking over the club and they pulled out in the end because they were led to understand that that it wouldn't work out but officially the premier league has never said no um, and you wonder if now that pr- the pressure and the, the recent experiences will force them to take a, st- a firmer hand in, in vetting potential takeovers. You mentioned Saudi Arabia's interest in investing in the Premier League. And when we're talking about ownership, it's difficult not to wade into the, well, what do you actually want your owners to be debate? Mm-hmm. And we've seen this play out in mainstream media, even on Sunday on Sky Sports, for example, where the Glazers and FSG were being decried, while Manchester City and Chelsea's ownerships were being praised for the money they spend on transfers for properly investing in recruitment to make their team successful. So there seems to be some hypocrisy going on now do you want your owners to be wealthy and to ensure the club is successful on the pitch regardless of anything else they do do you you want your owners to be clear of human rights abuses do you want your club to effectively be a sports washing project these are all the things that get thrown up when you talk about ownership and So essentially, for change to happen, because fans want so many contrasting things, governance, from a first point of view, probably has to come from legislation, maybe from the government rather than the Premier League, because the Premier League hasn't really shown control over its affairs. There are two two fascinating points there. One is... What we're kind of circling here is that the Premier League has never been a particularly uh, active governor. Um, you know, the, the Premier League, by design, uh, under two decades of Richard Scudamore, who really is the man credited with building it into the, the kind of business and entertainment uh, monster it is today. And I say monster in a good way, just something huge and, and overpowering. Um, but the what he did was try to run it as, as much of a closed shop as possible. And again, his focus was on commercial partnerships and TV rights. He didn't want to get involved with things that were on the pitch, even though he had to a couple of times. He didn't really want to get involved with um, doing anything but growing the Premier League. He didn't want to be kind of a, a public figure the way we see with commissioners, for instance, of the NBA and the NFL, where Roger Goodell becomes the figurehead of American football. Um, and makes a salary that is commensurate with that in the eight figures. Uh, Richard Scudamore was never in that kind of atmosphere. And, and so what we have now post Scudamore is a, an, a, an organization with kind of a legacy of small government and 
letting the owners sort themselves out. Um, but that was never designed for the kinds of owners we have in the Premier League today. And the, and the second point is that, as you hinted, there are two kinds of owners and, and what differentiates them is their motivations. And we saw this in the way the Super League fell apart. You have the owners who are in it to make money. And I would consider you know, the Glazers, John Henry at Liverpool, uh, the ownership at Arsenal and Spurs to be of that category. And then you have the owners who are in there using the Premier League, not so much to make a profit, but to improve reputations, to improve images. And so that's what we have more with Roman Abramovich, who has run Chelsea at a personal loss for nearly two decades, um, but has, has enhanced his own name you know, and was at games until he had that visa problem um, with entering the UK. Um, and even more clearly with Abu Dhabi and, and Manchester City, um, for whom acquiring Man City was part of a much larger uh, global communication strategy and a much larger uh, vision project to, to improve Abu Dhabi's standing and reputation in the world. And so when the super when when the tide of public opinion turned against the Super League, it was those two, Chelsea and Man City, who wavered first because they thought to themselves, we're in this for reputational reasons. And if this is unpopular, then what are we doing? Um, so that left them that they became the the first to to go. And you know, I, I think that that remains kind of a uh, that will remain kind of the dynamic going forward. For the next few years. Um, those are going to be the types of owners who are around and will have different ways of, of behaving because of those different motivations. Speaking about the types of owners, and when you look at the ultimate aim of the Manchester United fans' protests, they want the Glazers to sell up. But considering they believe United are going to be a $10 billion club, that doesn't really seem plausible. They'd want to stick around for that. And if it's not the Glazers, if they do actually think, oh, this is not worth all the hassle, let's pack up and go, what kind of owner is going to replace them? What kind of owner is not going to look after their own pockets of this absolute moneymaker that is Manchester United? That's the thing. Um, and, and that's the question we're going to be facing in football over the next decade, which is who can buy a football club anymore? City Football Group, um, with their collection of clubs, which is now up to 10, is valued at $5 billion. Man United would probably, if it hit the market today, because of the commercial machine behind it and the, just the sheer global reach, would probably go in the 3 to $4 billion range, you know. It's uh, there are only a handful of, of sporting endeavors in that in that range, you know, and the others we're talking about are probably the New York Yankees and the Dallas Cowboys. Um, but who can afford to spend that today? And the example that we're talking about most in the past week is Arsenal and the rumors of not more than rumors, the interest from Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify. Um, Spotify is extremely successful, but for him to then go and buy the club, he needs to shake loose two, somewhere between two and $4 billion. Um, and who knows what his own personal liquidity is because we get to a point where the only people who can spend that kind of money are no longer individuals. They are either 
huge conglomerates or huge groups of investors. And again, that's going to be people who want to see a return on their money pretty fast or countries. You know, sovereign wealth funds, Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi, Qatar, and other countries who are looking, who have cash to burn, um, are happy to run these clubs at a loss for a long time and are out there for non-business reasons. In saying that then, moving forward, how do we get to a place again where it feels like a football club is actually a football club there to win games there to be the heartbeat of their communities while yes still making money um still being attractive as an overseas proposition uh opening new markets do you ever think that balance can be reached because it seems like that's what the game is crying out for at the minute and if you were to highlight an ownership group that you think has managed to sort of make that happy equilibrium, who would you plumb for? That's a good question. Um, I, I think one of the things that's being asked in, in boardrooms all over football right now is trying to figure out as they try to grow their business, um, who are we servicing? Are we servicing the 50,000 who have season tickets and are out here every weekend? Or are we out there trying to capture the potential audience of hundreds of millions around the world who may never come to the stadium, but who are really the people propping up the price of foreign TV rights, who are buying merchandise, um, particularly in the US market where there is disposable income, there's an enthusiastic fan base, um, and, and Premier League clubs are desperate to, to carve up that, those fans for themselves. Um, so it's, it's a difficult one. Um, and whether it will ever feel like a whether they can ever feel like small community clubs again and and really build that that connection and and keep the keep that connection with the 50,000 who are out there every saturday you know quite precious um it, it's a hard ask I, I and i wonder if the the horse hasn't bolted the barn on that um as for a club or an ownership group that does a good job of it i'm trying to think in the premier league you know, I think Everton is one that probably still has that close community tie. Um, but again, you wonder, would that be the case if they had more success? Um, which is certainly what happened with the big six. As success grows, so does the, the will to uh, expand and capture more of that global audience. And, and the people who suffer are the, you know, the season ticket holders, the long time, the, the lifers, in that community. It's, it's tough to say whether those clubs still belong to the community when what they are desperate to do is belong to the world. Yeah, that's a great point. For a long time, I think, especially when the global pandemic hit, we started to see behind the curtain of football and how much it lives a hand-to-mouth existence. People would often talk about a reset, you know, this is a chance to reset football and to really enforce some change in terms of governance and structure and solidarity. A lot of financial experts were saying, well, it's good and well to talk about a reset, but how is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? Who's going to do the resetting? In a weird way, the Super League may have actually created the platform for that to happen. The fact that it failed so quickly and the reaction towards it showed that unity 
and the willpower to bring in, you know, legislation and stuff that could sort of protect football was clear for all to see. We also spoke about fan empowerment. There just seems to be a new feeling around everything. Can the Super League and the aftermath of it actually act as a reset? Full reset is, might be a little much, but it was certainly a wake-up call. Um, and and it'll be interesting to see how the Premier League moves forward. Uh, they didn't give a lot of specifics when they announced the plans for a new owner's charter yesterday or potential sanctions for clubs who were to try this again. Um, it'll be interesting to see how those materialize because as, as we know, this, ha- this has highlighted that Football, football is broken in many ways. And as you rightly say, clubs lead a hand-to-mouth existence. And that's, that's something that a lot of people don't realize. They see huge numbers because football clubs ha- have huge revenues, but their profits are quite small because their expenditures are massive. You know, when you go out and spend in the transfer market, you are essentially setting money on fire. You know, very few players retain resale value. Um, and there's a reason that we know the few clubs that are successful at building models out of player trading. You know, it's, it's teams like Borussia Dortmund and not many others um, because it's so difficult to keep picking right. Um, so they do that. And then what several owners have told me, and it drives them absolutely nuts, is that as soon as a new wave of money comes in, it really just gets pushed to the players. So everything goes into transfers and salaries and that's not a, a kind of sustainable way to build their businesses, which is frustrating to them and ultimately you know, not healthy for the game. There have been talks in the past of, um, of, of salary caps and things like that. The problem is that no one league wants to be the first to do it because the second you do that, you hamstring the clubs in your league and the talent flees. The talent, you know, in, individually players are not concerned with you know, would I would I give up part of my salary for the overall health of the game? Absolutely not. Nor should they be asked to. Really, I feel like we could talk about this for a long time because it's uh, it's it's just a fascinating issue, and we're really only at the beginning. You know, the end of the Super League was really only the beginning of a much larger conversation, um, where owners may or may not be held to account uh, for how they handled it and where hard questions have to be asked about what structure is right for football going forward, because the Super League was a clumsy, ham-fisted idea, for sure. But there were kernels of truth in what they were saying, which is this is not a sustainable way to run clubs or run leagues. Um, So far, what the clubs are doing is, what most clubs are doing, is keeping their lot with UEFA and saying, we trust UEFA to figure this out. But there are no guarantees anyone's going to figure it out in the very short term. Um, I don't mean to end on kind of a down note, but it's, uh, it's a very strange time in the game. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Van ownership has become a hot topic, specifically in the last few days. But is it really viable at the top end of the game? Julian Tag, chairman of Exeter City, gives us his view. Julian, can you give us an overview of how Exeter's fan ownership works, how it came to be? Because there is a lot of talk in the game at the moment about the German model of fan ownership and if there is any way it can be replicated in England, especially at Premier League level. And it's worked very well for you guys. So just a brief overview. I think the first thing to say is that no, nobody has all the answers. You know, everybody is trying to work towards a better solution, which obviously is required. Um, how, how our situation came to be was through adversity. And very often you see fans groups come together uh, when, when their club is threatened. And when there is a significant adversary, they're likely to lose their club, which is obviously particularly close to the fans, but also as a massive part of the community. And, uh, and actually, I, I looked up the, a definition of football and culture, and it, it just mentioned that it's absolutely ingrained in, in our society. So it's actually quite bigger than perhaps some people imagine. So ours came to be out of adversity because, uh, like so many owners that had taken it into a very difficult position, who put it into, uh, we thought it was at the time about 2.8 million, but it was 4.8 million in debt. Um, and and like every club there, you know, the sort of everybody was waiting for the white knight and didn't appear. And there was a, a very fledgling organisation of the trust that had got together um, initially to bring an extra player in to, to, to raise money to bring players into the club. Mm-hmm. But that organisation was obviously beginning to take some shape. Um, and there was some structure and basic governance behind how they thought they might do it. I don't think... Um, I was involved with, with, with the youth primarily at that point and not necessarily in the boardroom. Um, but I could see that there was uh, a, a will and a vision to our club was in a mess at that point, a, a huge mess. 
and they were actually thinking about ways that a club could be run such as ours so that was the really the uh, back in that was probably 2003 um so the fans actually acquired the club because there was so much debt and paid a small amount to it um and then the, the interesting thing here all the way along, and there's no blueprint for this, as, as you probably well know, um, you know, every club is different, circumstances are different. I don't know that there's a one-stop shop, and there's certainly for us, we've, uh, you know, we're in, we're in quite a good place now. But um, along the way, we've obviously made some mistakes because there is no blueprint, there is nothing to follow. And I think one of the things that uh, we've valued all the way through that's made is the and we've made it quite a, a significant point of is that so many times you see trusts evolve mm. and then they're very quickly because of the competitive nature of the league, the fans want success. And that comes with buying, you know, more expensive players. And I think one of the things I wouldn't say for one moment that we educated, but I think our fans who are, you know, very much involved, educated each other that says there must be a degree of patience. We're not going to be able to fly through the leagues so once there was a period of stabilization and we worked out how to just, if you like, work on the day to day, um, that's, um, that was, that was the, the first initial step. But how it works is you know, it's very, very democratic. It's hugely democratic. And um, like every system, it, that comes with massive advantages, some disadvantages. Um, so the actual structure is that um, somebody literally, we say somebody from the big bank or a supporter can put their name forward. And if there's a space on the, uh, I think it's about 12 seats, sometimes that varies a little bit on the supporters trust board. Uh, they get elected, they go to hustings and they get elected and they're on that board. Um, and then from that, um, it used to be one person was on the board, then it was two, then three. Now there's four. So the, it, the, the, the board is equal, four and four now, where there's four people from the trust. And they have been effectively, through a democratic process, elected through the fans onto the trust board and then from the trust board onto the club board. So they pretty much now, that wasn't always the the way and it has evolved over time but now the where it's moved from very much at the outset where people would actually use the phrase the trust owns the club to now very much that the trust runs the club and mm. uh, and it seems they're doing you know and they're doing a very good job and there's a there's a mix of people that uh, uh if you like from the from a trust background and a mix from from um other other walks of life myself one of those although I'm number 83 as a trust member, so I was one of the early ones. So that's really how it works. It, um, it works in the set. And then, of course, right the way through, there's a, the, the value and the huge amount of value is the, the number of volunteers that do work. That becomes, becomes difficult sometimes because you can't tell somebody who's a volunteer, I want this done by then and that done by then. So that it comes with frustrations. But for the most part, the huge majority are hugely reliable. One of the things that... Um, has helped us considerably um, is, is we, we've done very well with developing players, both players that we've bought in and, and, and improved, but also significantly we've done very well. It was always a trust objective to, 
to support the youth and, and, our, and our youth programme has been uh, particularly effective, which, um, which, which it needs to be because we don't have, as I always use the proverbial, and I don't mean it in a disparaging way, but we don't have a mill owner or a person that can put in huge amounts of money. That, that doesn't exist in our club and any, any um, suggestion of it or, or, or even people that have, have offered to put in has been, has been rejected. This is for a young man who's just turned 17, Ethan Ampadu, signed in the summer from Exeter City. Son of Kwame Ampadu. And on for his debut. You've painted quite a vivid picture there, and it sounds like a definite win for a feeling that the football club belongs to the community, belongs to the fans is doing all the right things in terms of infrastructure, uh, facility-wise, academy-wise, recruitment-wise. And like you say, there's always that balance in trying to do that, marrying it with success. It's, it's not easy. But, you know, in a wider scale, there's probably, in the Football League, a lot of clubs that could mirror the model or mirror fan ownership maybe not in an identical sense to what Exeter have done but looking further up there are so many fans of Premier League clubs that do want this fan ownership model that do want a greater say but from your perspective is that even feasible at, at the top end of the game where there's so much money swirling around there and there's billionaires that own clubs. There are states that own clubs. Why are they going to relinquish what they have and give more to fans? It, that's going to be very, very difficult, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we, 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 we talk about it all the time. You know, our fans want the cheapest possible tickets, which is what we try and achieve. But we want the best centre forward who comes at the highest price so you know those are two almost like opposites of a magnet yes so you know that that's exactly what you've described only on a on a, on a grander scale um i think i think what i'm beginning to up uh, you know it, perhaps personal but i'm beginning to realize but i did i did mention it to others the other day i think one of the things that we've done is grown with it over a long period of time it's not going to happen tomorrow you're not going to you're not going to be able to impose it and uh, my thought at that time was that more work could be done in the leagues below us, perhaps, where it's closer to that model. There's, there are, of course, people taking over the lower clubs. And you look at the, you know, Fleetwood not long ago were below us, Salford, and you know, there's huge amounts of money. So th those will always happen, or they will certainly for, you know, I can't see them not happening at the moment. But perhaps if this movement, they, they want to grow what we're doing or something similar, there's an opportunity to look lower down because then it, then, it, then it gets into your DNA, you know, as opposed to, you know, a, a, a transplant. <laughs> it's something that, you know, you grow up with from over the years and it becomes normal. Uh, and I don't know that it's very, that it's, that those, as you quite rightly say, whether those people are going to just stand aside and say, well, carry on, off you go. And um, the expectations of the fans that are there are, uh, it was very interesting to listen to Michael the other day about the Man United and everybody's got an opinion of 
And, um, you know, he said he, he understood the fans and, and respected what they did and was glad that they did what they did. But how are we going to find somebody to to make us the, you know, the, the, that, that club that can pay those wages or buy those? And, and listen, I, I really don't know the answer to that. But looking from the from lower down the pyramid where I am, maybe the opportunity with is in the, as, as people say, in the grassroots. So. This is in our DNA now. You know, we've done it for so long that it's sort of almost second nature. It's still a struggle. It's still tough. You know, we still are working towards finding a place where we can break even. And um, the, 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 the salary cap is a huge factor in that. Um, and the, the salary cap that uh, was in place was voted for across our league. Um, was, 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 a, was huge for us as a as a trust owned club because it, it, it limited certainly to a degree what people could put in. So it, it certainly leveled the playing field and made our model more sustainable, which is exactly what all those people in that league wanted. That's what all the owners wanted. And there's some, you know, whilst there are some that get pointed at, there's some, there's some, there's some really good, decent owners trying to do the best they can for their clubs and their community. So, and I think the other thing is that as you go through the divisions that, you may have to accept for a while until it becomes ingrained in the DNA of a club that the, the, the National League wants something different than League Two. League Two wants something different than League One. League One wants something different than the Premiership. If you try and impose it across from top to bottom, I mean, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? It'd be utopia, but as you, I mean, it, it, you, that's what you said a moment ago. That's what you told me. That's almost impossible. So I don't see how you're going to suddenly turn something upside down and shake it. It's just, I don't see how that's going to happen. It's certainly beyond me to be able to work that. But what I do see is that over a period of time, bearing in mind, as I say, we've been in 18 or 19 years, it's in our DNA. There are some things that can affect it. And one is the salary cap. Two, I think, is the situation. We, we're very much dependent upon developing young players, which every every club should do. Many clubs do exactly that. And the Premier League do a phenomenal job in giving us a certain amount of grant money. So, and we survive on that for our academy, so I'm not ungrateful. But the Elite Player Performance Plan um, allows those clubs to, to take young players at the age of 16 at something way below their real value, and, and they know it. So before the pandemic, I think there was an opportunity to address that, but the pandemic stopped that at the point. But I think even... I think people do realise now that, that that is something that makes it even more difficult to do or for any club to become supporter-owned and, 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 and get involved with their youth because, you know, as people said, oh, the boys down in Exeter, they're not tough enough. They need to come from the north. or Well, we've certainly disproved that. Our boys, you know, I think the boys in this country are tough wherever they come from, you know, whether they're determined. And so that is those, those two things. As I mentioned the other day at a, a football league meeting, the salary cap and the and the the the, uh, the um, arbitration rules, which which determine that a sixteen-year-old has to go for a certain fee, that needs to be. I, I see that as unfair and needs to be readdressed. Um, so those and, and and the third is, of course, as I mentioned, is is ingraining in a club that they can handle at their level, that they get more used to it, that they're not under massive pressure, because as I mentioned earlier, you know you have relegation, so you know you can't 
it gets a point where people there's a there's a there's a, a level of panic. Nobody wants to go down a league. The supporters don't want them to go down a league. The supporters are very vocal if if things aren't going right on the pitch. Um, so it I don't think anybody should underestimate it. And I think sometimes people do. It's a massive, massive, massive task to run a football club because we've been at it so long and people understand. And I think certainly our city, certainly our city council, county council and and the work that we do in the community is very, very well recognised. And whilst that doesn't put you in the league above, that does give, um, you know, the the it does it does make a lot of the work that those volunteers and others but very, very worthwhile. So um, everybody wants success, but there are other things that you could deem as success too. Between the Lines is a Stakhanov production. Written and narrated by me, Melissa Reddy. Our producer is Charlie Morgan. Our assistant producer is Natalie Wilson. The executive producers are John Teague and Luke Aaron Moore. Sound design and mixing is by Tom Wally. All music comes courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network.